0: Move over, billionaires, we're doing science, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I'm not here to talk about buying a ticket to ride along with Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, but I would like to talk about how their new suborbital space vehicles – may usher in a new era for space science. Alan Stern is a big believer in this opportunity. In fact, he looks forward to his own flight that will include two experiments. The New Horizons principal investigator will also give us an update on his spacecraft that is well past Pluto and Arakoth. New Horizons recently looked even further out toward Voyager. Have your days been dominated by the Olympics? Bruce Betts is right there alongside you, which explains today's Olympics-themed What's Up. A big thank you to everyone who had such nice things to say about last week's long and fascinating conversation with Andy Chaiken about Apollo and Artemis. So, guess what's on top of the July 30th edition of The Down Lake? That's Apollo 15 Commander Dave Scott at the mm, joystick of the first lunar roving vehicle. You'll find it at planetary.org slash downlink along with these headlines. NASA has decided Europa Clipper will ride a SpaceX Falcon Heavy to Jupiter's moon. The decision came after Congress relaxed a requirement that the spacecraft travel on the giant Space Launch System rocket that is still headed toward its first launch. Astronomers think they found water vapor in the atmosphere of Europa's neighbor Ganymede, which makes the planned 2022 launch of the European Space Agency's JUICE mission even more exciting. JUICE will study all the Jovian moons. And you've probably heard about the harrowing moments that followed the docking of Russia's new Nauka module with the International Space Station, Initial reports said uncontrolled firing of the module's thrusters may have knocked the entire ISS out of alignment by 45 degrees. That's bad enough, but recent reports indicate it may have been much worse. We're waiting for details. We'll go to Alan Stern in a minute, but I first want to pay tribute to another of the great explorers I've met while hosting this show. It was back in the late winter of 2014 that I accompanied a big group of Planetary Society members— To Fairbanks, Alaska. I based two episodes on that trip. Neil Brown was featured in both. I got word from his family that Neil passed away a few days ago. The former director of the Poker Flat Research Range was retired by the time I met him, but he had lost none of his enthusiasm for science and rockets. Understanding the Aurora Borealis became his passion, and it was a passion he was delighted to share with others. He lived a magnificent life. You can read about it and connect with those two shows from this week's episode page, found at planetary.org/radio. You probably know Alan Stern best as the principal investigator for the ongoing New Horizons mission, but that's just the beginning. It's why I call Alan the busiest person in space. Of course, he's never actually been there—not yet, anyway. That may change in a matter of months when Alan climbs aboard Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 Unity. As you're about to hear, it will be much more than a joyride. Alan is likely to become the first scientist to conduct hands-on research during a suborbital flight. He is convinced he'll be followed by many, many others in what he believes is the opening of a new era. Alan talked with me a few days ago from the Southwest Research Institute, where he is Associate Vice President of the Space Science and Engineering Division. Alan, welcome back to the show. It's uh, been a little while. Uh, you've still been on more than just about anybody who has ever been my guest on Planetary Radio, but that's because you always have great new stuff to talk about. Welcome back.
1: Oh, well, thank you, man. It's great to be back. It's one of my favorite things to do is to come on uh, on Planetary Radio.
0: That means a lot to me. Thank you very much, Alan. Were you uh, jumping up and down for joy over the past uh, couple of weeks when first we saw Virgin Galactic fly that Unity 22 flight in Spaceship Two and then Blue Origin go above the Karman line?
1: It was spectacular, both of them. Uh, Home run hits, and uh, you're absolutely right. I was jumping for joy. I wasn't jumping as high as they fly, (laughs) but I was jumping pretty high. (laughs)
0: Well, you have more reason than most of us uh, to be happy about this stuff, because I know that you are planning to do a lot of science up there. In fact, I got a nice surprise when I was doing my research for this conversation. I went on the Virgin Galactic site after uh, Googling Virgin Galactic science or payload, I forget which. And uh, what do I see first? A two-minute video by Alan Stern saying, this is where Star Trek begins. What did you mean?
1: Well, I think the whole era that we're living in, Matt, is uh, where Star Trek begins. This is really the inflection point with um, spaceflight uh, breaking out and uh, the, the power of commercial spaceflight. And I don't just mean suborbital, but the things that are going on in orbit with human space tourists, with human research applications, with satellite constellations, with uh, robotic commercial taking us uh, to the moon and the planets and many other things really is, I think, the secret sauce for the beginning of human expansion into space. Before, we were always limited to only doing what the government could afford to do. And now we have this proliferation of innovation and new applications coming about through commercial spaceflight, of which suborbital is one and one important one, but only one. And I think in two centuries time, in that Star Trek era, people will look back on our time in the early 21st century, and say, this is where Star Trek began.
0: Hmm. I wanted to have this conversation with you in part because it, I hope, will expose all of this work that can be done on spaceships like the Virgin Galactic Ship and Blue Origin's New Shepard by scientists, by others who are preparing us to go further into space. Because I think that's kind of been lost, uh, partially in the backlash to all of this. And and I'll only bring this up once, but I'm sure you have heard much of the media and a lot of other folks talking about, oh boy, here are the billionaires at play. Why aren't they spending their money on something else? I like to make the point that this is, whatever else you may think of you know, rich people going to space, This is real evidence of how much easier it is for all of us and our work to uh, head up there where only, well, what is it, uh, fewer than 600 people have ever gone.
1: I agree with you, Matt. It's going to be very powerful for researchers. And and I'm perfectly happy with uh, uh, Bezos and Branson flying on their own vehicles. Both these gentlemen invested enormous amounts of money to build their companies, hundreds of employees, I think in the case of Blue Origin, thousands of employees, Hmm. great jobs. They're creating a new space future. I don't see any problem at all with, you know, these guys put, in both cases, 20 years into this. Both companies started the very earliest 2002, 2004 era. And here we are in 2021, and they want to fly on their vehicles now that they're ready to go. I'm all for it, just like 100 years ago, Uh, We saw the founders of airlines flying on their own airlines as early passengers when they were very expensive.
0: That's a great point. I want to stick with science from here on out. I'm going to begin with the fact that doing science on suborbital flights is nothing new. When I was 10 years old, 10 or 11, my parents got me the life science library. And my favorite book from that set, which is spectacular, is called Man in Space. One of my favorite illustrations is uh, called Taking a Sample of Space, and it has these beautiful uh, drawings, uh, illustrations, of eight different sounding rockets that were designed to allow scientists and engineers to do exactly this kind of work on these, these tall, thin rockets. So I, I, I wouldn't want anybody to think that doing this work and, you know, not quite reaching orbit is, is something new.
1: No, in fact, the, uh, the earliest research done in space was done with uh, captured German suborbital V2s in the 1940s when the United States formed a science committee to look at how those vehicles could be pressed into uh, scientific research. And I got my start in the space industry in the early 1980s, long before I got my PhD, working on suborbital sounding rockets to study the aurora, to study comets and uh, other astrophysical phenomena on these suborbital flights. And I can remember even back then thinking, what if you could put people on these vehicles? How much better would that would be in terms of your ability to conduct research where the experimenter can be with the experiment? I don't think I ever imagined that it would be uh, what we have today, but now we have this capability and I think it's gonna be transformational for space research.
0: So what you're talking about there is what I see referred to, both from Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, as human-tended experiments. What makes the difference? Why is it going to be useful to have a human flying along with these racks of equipment?
1: Well, you're asking me a question that I, I'd love to have asked. You know, <laughs> space research has been a, a very unusual and disadvantaged kind of research compared to all of the research disciplines ever since it started. Because back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and even since, it was too expensive. We didn't have the the ability to throw the weight or to spend the money to send the researcher with the experiment. And so all of us who do space research, with the rare exception of a few astronauts, have had to automate our experiments whether they're on faraway robotic missions to the planets or whether they're just in Earth orbit. And automation is, A, expensive, and B, it's failure-prone. It's not great. Um, You don't see oceanographers automating all the ships. They sail on their (laughs) ship and do their research. You don't see astronomers automating all the observatories. Uh, It's easier to put the astronomer at the telescope. You don't see every university lab being automated. No, because it's expensive and it's failure prone. Only in space research have we been stuck in this little cul-de-sac where the researcher couldn't fly with the experiment and do research the same way that researchers do their work in every other discipline. And now we finally have the chance to fly researchers at costs that actually make sense, that are less expensive than those sounding rockets. So it's a benefit, whether it's government or commercial research, the sounding rockets now look like the old, stodgy, expensive way. <laughs> and we now have these commercial vehicles that let individuals like myself fly and do the experiment uh, themselves at higher reliability and lower cost. What's wrong with that? It's like everything, <laughs> everything seems like, uh, you know, every part of this story is right side up. So
0: when do you get to go? I saw the announcement from a few months back uh, from uh, where that place where you're a VP, the Southwest Research Institute, that uh, you are going to be accompanying some of this work on, well, in this case, I think it was uh, Virgin Galactic, but uh, are you also looking at flying on Blue Origin's uh, ship?
1: Well, Matt, we're hoping to fly uh, at the Southwest Research Institute on all the available vehicles that are safe. Hmm. Uh, we have... Uh, Tremendous number of uh, applications that we see for this kind of stuff. I was very fortunate when I proposed to NASA last year to fly with a couple of experiments that we developed at Southwest uh, on uh, Virgin Galactic that they accepted our proposal on the first try. Uh, Virgin hasn't given us a a flight date because they're still in their test program. I believe they have two more test flights after the Branson flight. But I'm hopeful that it'll be next year. For the first of our flights, and then every year after that, for the foreseeable future as we do more and more.
0: That is particularly exciting and makes me particularly envious. So, what are you going to do up there with three or four minutes of microgravity, which we, you know, we should point out that's uh, many times what you can get on the at least in any one parabola on, uh, on a vomit comet?
1: Right. On an airplane, uh, you get 20 seconds at a time, sometimes 30. Uh, and there are lots of microgravity applications, but that's not what, what we propose to do. We propose to do two things. Uh, I'll tell you about both of them. One is that I'm going to be wearing a uh, biomedical harness, hmm. uh, the same kind of harness that space shuttle astronauts wore. It measures respiration uh, rate and, and your blood pressure and your pulse as a function of time to develop an understanding of not what a tourist or a pilot might experience, but what a researcher experiences on their first space flight. So we'll put that on before I put on the flight suit, turn it on, it runs for many hours on batteries, and I'll just wear it. I don't have to do anything, it's passive. And it'll be taking those vital signs all through the preparations, through the launch, the space flight portion, the entry, the landing, all of that. And we hope that it's the first of what will become hundreds of data sets on researchers flying in space. And we're interested in all kinds of questions, not just what does it look like as a profile as you go through the the high G's of launch and entry and the microgravity uh, around Apogee, but how does an individual researcher's uh, vital signs change as they become more familiar with spaceflight? Would it be different on my fifth flight than on my first flight, for example? And how to... Different researchers respond, people of different ages, different medical histories, different genders, uh, different experience levels, so that we can help future researchers know what to expect. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded as an old story, when the first space shuttle took off, there were two, two people on board, the pilot and the commander. The commander was John Young, and his heart rate was measured at about 80 beats per minute, <laughs> pretty much normal. but The pilot was up at 140. He was a rookie. Uh, a guy named Bob Crippen. And in the press conference after the flight, they asked Young, how come your your heart rate was so low? He said, well, I'm getting older. I just don't think it goes any faster than that anymore. (laughs) 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 Um, But the other thing that I'll be doing on this flight uh, is probably even more important. We want to understand how well these vehicles can do other kinds of research. In our case, astronomy. Hmm. We've had astronomical sounding rockets, suborbital missions, for 70 years, literally 70 years since the 1950s, uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin vehicles are going to fly much more often than sounding rockets ever did. So we have the chance to do astronomy much more often and at lower price points. But first, we have to know how well does the vehicle do? How well can it point and how transparent are the windows? You can do some of that on the ground, looking through the windows. But, you know, in flight, there are differences. There's the big old Earth out there reflecting light into the window. There's glints off the wings of the Virgin Galactic vehicle. There are probably exhaust films that get on the windows from the rocket-powered flight, and you can't simulate all that on the ground. So I'm taking a payload uh, called SWISS, the Southwest Ultraviolet Imaging System, that we designed for the space shuttle and flew several times, I was principal investigator. We're taking it on Virgin Galactic to look through their windows At the same star fields and astronomical objects that we looked at on the space shuttle years ago to compare the two to see if uh, the Virgin windows um, are as good as the space shuttle windows and therefore determine the efficacy of uh, the Virgin Galactic vehicle for doing astronomical research in the future. Hmm.
0: Alan, I'm going to remind uh, listeners that uh, Bob Crippen was my guest a couple of months ago and told some great stories about that That's first uh, shuttle flight and uh, and his partner up there, John Young. You also make me think of uh, something I read about what Blue Origin will be able to do with New Shepard, and that is uh, expose experiments directly to space, and of course, the New Shepard flies above the Carmen line, above that 60 miles, basically. Is that also something that, that that you're looking at and doing away with having to look through the window altogether?
1: We will, absolutely. We're going to be comparing a Blue Origin's vehicle, New Shepard, someday, I hope. We hmm. don't yet have flights on New Shepard, but a comparison of what Virgin can do and what uh, a Blue Origin can do is certainly in our mind, and I hope to propose that.
0: More suborbital science and a New Horizons update are just ahead with Alan Stern.
1: There's
2: so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, Twitter. YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: Are you familiar with uh, the experiment that was riding along with Richard Branson on that uh, Unity 22 flight from Virgin Galactic? Uh, it's from these two researchers at the University of Florida, Gainesville. Uh, Robert, I, I don't know if I'll get the name right, maybe you know it, Robert Farrell or Ferrell, and Annalisa Paul. Apparently they've been sending plants up Uh, since the 1990s on shuttle missions, but they made this very interesting point that um, nobody has really had the opportunity to study what happens, at least to plants, during the transition from 1G to 0G and then back again. All the other work has happened while you're already up on orbit. And apparently they're already seeing some interesting things. Seems like a really good example of what these flights may be able to tell us.
1: No, I think you're right. Uh, I know Annalisa and Bob very well. They both served on a committee that I chaired for the Commercial Spaceflight Federation 10 huh. years ago mm-hmm. called the Suborbital Applications Researchers Group, or SARG, in which we had biologists, astronomers, microgravity scientists, Earth scientists, others looking at and, and in a sense, brainstorming the range of applications that these suborbital commercial vehicles can give us. This transition to microgravity is one of those areas where uh, it's, it's almost, uh, not to make a pun about Virgin Galactic, but it's virgin territory. <laughs> on, on space shuttle and ISS missions, the astronauts are busy getting the cockpit squared away. The first few minutes, they're not doing research. And so we miss that opportunity to study the immediate transition to microgravity. Another example of applications in microgravity is that, as you said, We can go fly on a microgravity airplane, a vomit comet, but the the G disturbances, the perturbations are much higher. You don't get as clean a microgravity, and the suborbital flights last 10 times longer. So there are a whole variety of chemical and physical processes, physiological as well, that just don't complete in 20 seconds. Hmm. So you can't see them end to end, but having 10 times as long on a suborbital flight is a brand-new application area And the great thing about it is, as I said earlier, because these flights are going to be very frequent, we can go back week after week and turn the dials differently, just the way you would in your laboratory if you were on the ground as a researcher, say, in a university lab, and improve the experiment over and over and over. You can expect to fly five or ten suborbital commercial missions for about the cost of one NASA sounding rocket. Wow. Which is a tremendous boost. And because they fly frequently, you could fly, have researchers flying 10 missions in a year. Think of the speed of the research, how much more quickly it progresses when you can do five or 10 things for the price of one and get them all done, not in a decade, but in a single year.
0: There was something else that I saw in uh, the Blue Origin, their uh, section of their website that talked about taking payloads up to space. Never occurred to me. They... Propose partial G missions where uh, while the capsule is under zero G or microgravity, they can spin it and simulate, as an example, lunar gravity, which seems to me something that would be very useful for all of these folks, including NASA, wanting to send the first woman and the next man back to the moon. This would be pretty useful.
1: Absolutely, it is. And it does have a little bit of a history. It's not very well known. But on the, uh, the microgravity airplanes, they can fly parabolas that are at 1.6 G or, hmm. or Mars gravity, 0.4 Gs. And that has been done for research purposes in the past. But again, those only last 20 seconds, 30 seconds. You don't have a longer period, which these suborbital rockets allow you to do. I think it's going to be a popular niche area for research.
0: I hope you can talk a little bit about how, at least, the impression that I got from both of these companies, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, that supporting the kind of work that you and others want to do, it's not an afterthought. This is very much a part of the design of these uh, suborbital uh, spacecraft.
1: To some extent, when they started, they only had the tourism use case in mind. Ah. I'm talking twenty years ago. Uh-huh. Um, you, you remember there was the X Prize that uh, sponsored a prize, I think it was $5 million, but I might have the number wrong, for the first commercial suborbital space flight. Yeah. And Bert Rutan got involved uh, in that and won the X Prize back in 2004 for flying several missions to the Carmen line in something called Spaceship One. Branson noticed that thousands of people were coming out to Mojave for the launches, interested and excited, and he thought, well, there's a market there for tourism. And there is a market for tourism. We know that. Hundreds of people have bought tickets, and soon it'll be thousands. When I was uh, leading the science mission director at NASA, which is the organization that does all of NASA's science, my boss, Mike Griffin, who was a NASA administrator, asked the leadership at NASA, what, what can we do with commercial spaceflight that will advance our field? And I came forward and said, you know, we ought to look at these tourist vehicles and see what we can do with them. This was back in 2007. Uh, We got to see what kind of applications there are because they're getting built on somebody else's dime. And if we can buy them by the flight and don't have to pay for the whole development, it might be a really good deal for NASA. And Griffin liked that. And so uh, uh, we set up a meeting with uh, Branson back there in early 2008 in New York. And I went up there and met him and talked to him about this. And he was pretty excited about it. I I met uh, and spoke to uh, Jeff Bezos the next year in 2000, later in 2008, same year, actually both men saw that there were important applications uh, beyond tourism and therefore as a result they've added not just research but also education and public outreach as additional use cases alongside tourism and i think what we're going to see over the next 10 years is that those use cases are as robust as tourism that they're going to be specialized vehicles that are that are developed the same way that Airplanes, like a, a Boeing airplanes, can be cargo airplanes or passenger airplanes. Hmm. Uh, I think we're going to see research suborbital vehicles alongside passenger suborbital vehicles because there's so many applications and there's going to be so much demand. And part of the reason there's so much demand is the low cost. I did a calculation once, and I'll tell you about it. You know, when the United States buys a seat on Soyuz, it costs us the better part of $100 million. Hmm. That's a lot of money to fly a single astronaut up to the ISS, but it's a very tiny fraction of this nation's gross domestic product, which is measured in the many trillions. If you take the ratio of $100 million Soyuz seed to the country's GDP, it's a tiny number, as I said. At that same ratio, tiny countries can afford to have researchers and educators flying on suborbital missions, because they only cost a few hundred thousand, not a few hundred million. So we could see virtually every country on earth flying astronauts and researchers and educators in space to do real work. Even tiny countries like Aruba, a tiny island nation that has one third the GDP of Boulder County, Colorado, where I live, <laughs> can't afford suborbital space flight. They can't afford orbital. It's too heavy a lift at least until orbital prices come down. But suborbital is the democratizing vehicle in which virtually every nation on earth can fuel their STEM pipeline, can do research, can excite kids with educational missions and do more because we are going to have the volume to have access and the low prices that allow virtually any government on earth to enter into the space age.
0: This is very exciting stuff. I read I I couldn't find much about pricing for Virgin Galactic, but I saw someplace not on the Blue Origin site that um, you know a high school and there are some high schools that are working on projects like this can send a payload up on New Shepard for as little as eight thousand dollars. That both of these companies they've designed rack mount systems and power. Provision and ways to record your data—it's—it's it's all there. You just have to meet their their interface. I—I I suppose is the right way to put it.
1: That's exactly right. And so we can start seeing kids doing science fair projects in space. I think we'll start to see, for that matter, uh, college students and and uh, postdocs starting to fly in space in this decade. Wow. Uh, I mean, uh, Blue urgent just flew an eighteen-year-old individual. But, you know, that was for a tourist experience. There's no reason that if we can send college students and graduate students down to the South Pole or to the edge of a volcano or down in a submersible under the ocean, that they shouldn't also be able to fly in space. It's the 21st century. It's time. (laughs)
0: I couldn't agree more. Not just STEM, but maybe even STEAM. Add that A for the arts, uh, because I noted that there have been some art projects. Some artists have sent some work up uh, on at least New Shepard, if not uh, Virgin Galactic.
1: I'm with you, and I'm kicking myself that I left the A out to STEAM (laughs) when I said STEM, because whether they're musicians or painters or they're making jewelry or you know, any kind of art, it's the human experience. And humans are destined to to go to space the same way that we were destined to leave our cradle in Africa. I think this is the breakout era now, both uh, suborbitally and then soon orbitally, where here in the early 21st century, space flight won't be limited to the few government employees that are professional astronauts, but to a much broader spectrum of people for many different purposes. And I think it's going to be transformational.
0: Alan, I definitely see now why you said this is where Star Trek begins. Uh, I can't let you go, of course, until we talk a little bit, catch up on New Horizons. Congratulations on the publication of this new compendium, of uh, the data that you've picked up with that magnificent mission. It's uh, it's called The Pluto System After New Horizons, and the primary editor is one S. Alan Stern.
1: Well, I'm one of five editors who all worked very hard and about 100 authors involved in the 25 chapters and the appendices, uh, working scientists who have uh, put this book together as the state-of-the-art textbook on everything we learned from the Pluto flyby. Uh, from the geology to the atmospheric science to the origin of the Pluto system and more. It just came out this month in July uh, as we're taping this. It's a result of, uh, there's two ways to look at it. It's, it's a four-year project to design and bring this book to fruition. Or you could look at it as a 30-year project uh, from the time we started trying to make the case why we should go explore uh, the Pluto system. But either way, this 700 pages of science goodness is putting a bow around that first exploration of Pluto and uh, will be a textbook on the shelves of graduate students and scientists uh, in planetary science for decades to come.
0: I noted that it is available as an e-textbook as well as uh, the hardcover uh, version that is uh, that is out, as you said, as of just a week or two ago as we speak. I mean, yeah, it'll be a terrific resource for, for students, for grad students and others. What do you hope that it will do for the science community um, to bring all of this data together? And there is a lot of it. you got 688 pages, 8.5 by 11 pages here.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, this is a, a book in something called the University of Arizona Space Science Series that was started in the 1970s. Uh, and it is the most successful and most cherished series of really review volumes that bring a whole topic together like this in the history of planetary science. There are now dozens of these books, and every time we fly to a new place or uh, to a new type of place in the solar system, another book is generated. For researchers, not just in the narrower topic of Pluto and its system of moons, but in the dwarf planets as a category in the Kuiper Belt, this is the definitive textbook written by experts in 25 different sub if it's like the other books that I have on my shelf, it'll be useful 20 years from now. Hmm. Uh, it'll be useful 30 years from now. It'll eventually need to be updated, I hope, when we fly a Pluto orbiter mission.
0: <laughs> right, uh, right.
1: Or our missions to other uh, dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt. But for now, it's it's really the one-stop shop for virtually everything that we know and that we learned as a result of the horizons to Pluto.
0: Great stuff, Alan. Uh, before you go, what's the health of the spacecraft? How, what's the outlook for the mission?
1: Well, thanks for asking, Matt. Uh, New Horizons is just spectacular. You know, we launched it 15 and a half years ago in 2006. And you look at the telemetry, the spacecraft systems and the instruments, you'd never know it. It looks exactly like it did when it came out of the box on launch day. Huh. The spacecraft is performing spectacularly. We're not using any of the backup systems because something's broke. We have fuel and power and communications capability to go on at least into the late 2030s. And maybe even some of our engineers now think into the 2040s, wow. studying the environment out there, studying more Kuiper Belt objects. Uh, we're working as hard as we can t- to find another flyby target. There are proposals to do some kinds of astrophysics with New Horizons that can't be done from any observatory on the Earth or in Earth orbit things that you need to be far away to do, and we are very far away, now more than 5 billion miles out. So I think the future for New Horizons is really bright. The team is excited to uh, send our next extended mission proposal to NASA at the beginning of next year and fly on and on across the 20s and the 30s, contributing to, to science in ways that only New Horizons can
0: you did something very special, I think, in the spring. About when you reached that milestone of fifty astronomical units, uh, that is uh, fifty times as far out as uh, Earth is from the Sun. Uh, that was back in April. You took a picture which um, struck home with me, hit me in the heart. Something very—I don't know. I'll call it romantic, but uh, I know it meant a lot to you as well.
1: I think you're talking about our picture that was a uh, an ode to Voyager. Yes, I am. So. Uh... You know, New Horizons is not the first spacecraft to reach this tremendous distance, 50 times as far away from the sun as the Earth is. We stand on the shoulders of giants. The two NASA Pioneer spacecraft, Pioneers 10 and 11, and then Voyagers 1 and 2, came this way before. Uh, The Pioneers are now gone. They've run out of power. They don't operate anymore. The two Voyagers uh, are still operating 44-plus years, almost 45 years after they launched. And uh, they're much further out. So when we crossed this this 50 AU marker, astronomical unit marker, I had the idea that it would be uh, meaningful to a lot of people. If we took a picture of where Voyager 1, the most distant operating spacecraft, is as seen from the Kuiper Belt. Hmm. Um, And, of course, we can't see Voyager. It's too tiny. But nonetheless, it's symbolic. And so we took a picture uh, late last year in uh, December. In fact, at that time, it was the farthest image ever made from the Earth. And we released it as we crossed 50 AU. At the time that we took the picture, we were 50 astronomical units from the Earth, but we weren't quite 50 astronomical units from the sun. And, you know, we did it as a, as a hat tip to those Pioneer and Voyager spacecraft that came before us. And uh, also as a a bit of a memento of our team to theirs for all that they did to make it possible for us to be able to fly a much lower cost mission to these great distances.
0: It was a lovely gesture, Alan. Thank you for that. Thank you for coming back on the show. Best of success with all of this that you have going on. I can't wait to uh, greet you after your first flight. It'll be a tiny fraction of 1AU. But it'll still be a, a giant leap, I think, in terms of uh, doing uh, inexpensive science, space science, uh, that uh, first flight that you uh, hopefully will be making before long on Virgin Galactic. Uh, Alan, again, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Matt. And thanks for all you do for uh, for science and exploration with Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary
0: Radio, just like it is every week we are joined by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Bats is here. Hey, welcome. Hey, good to be here, Matt. How you doing? <laughs> I'm pretty fun. I, I'm pretty fun. You are pretty fun, <laughs> Matt. You're very fun. You you underestimate your fun. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Here's something fun from Gene Lewin in the state of Washington. It's not a poem. He sends his poems all the time. This is a photo which we'll try and put on the show page of planetary.org slash radio. Uh, Gene and I guess some other folks, significant other maybe, noticed this big disk, this big white disk hanging in the sky, and it was kind of creepy. So he did what every good ufologist does. He went and got his telescope. (laughs) (laughs) And he was actually able to see that it was a weather balloon. And uh, he took a great uh, picture just, you know, holding the camera up to the eyepiece. It's very instructive. I think it was uh, a good timing for this piece.
2: Yeah, it's very
0: cool. He turned a UFO into an IFO. (laughs) (laughs) I get it because I'm fun. What's up other than weather balloons? (laughs) Well, that's pretty much it. That's all I was going to point to this week. No.
2: <laughs> no, we've got uh, Venus still low in the west in the early evening, looking super bright. We got Jupiter and Saturn rising in the east in the early evening and uh, shining all through the night, with Jupiter being the much brighter of the two. And the Perseid meteor shower, traditionally the second best of the year in terms of number of meteors from a dark site We'll be peaking the night of the 12th, 13th of August, and you'll have increased activity for several days before and after, Uh, and the moon will set by midnight or so, and you generally get more meteors after midnight anyway, so if you can party after midnight, you'll probably see more. We go on to This Week in Space History it's the 60th anniversary of Vostok 2, where German Titov became the second human in space and the first to sleep in space and the first to vomit in space. Congratulations.
0: <laughs> first, but definitely not the last to, uh, to lose his lunch or lose his space food sticks or whatever the Soviets were eating at that time. <laughs> I believe the technical term was space goo. <laughs>
2: Still is too often. Anywho, tenth anniversary of the launch of Juno that is partying at Jupiter, and the ninth anniversary of the landing of Curiosity on Mars, and it's still being curious. Nine wow. years in wow, admission. just amazing. We move on to random, a random space fact. Ran, 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 ran. I'm Olympics obsessed, Matt. I Every two years, I lose two weeks of my life to the Olympics. So we're doing Olympic themes right now. I'm also obsessed with LightSail 2, of course. So at launch, the LightSail 2 spacecraft had the width of a balance beam and the length of a rugby ball. And the deployed sail is the size of a boxing ring. I love it. Don't worry, there'll be more. We move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you to name all who have flown longer than one year. In this case, 365 days or more in space on single missions. And I got myself confused because there's the people who flew 365 days and 22 hours or such. I was trying to exclude them, but we're including them. So I'll take, I'll take whatever, as long as you got the right answers. Tell us how they, they, the
0: listeners did with this. I'm just so flustered at, at, phrasing this poorly go ahead you're Matt. frustrated with yourself i understand i understand you're, you're 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 tough on yourself you thought that you had this pinned down well that's okay because our winner who will learn the identity of in a moment had all four of the people who've been there f- at least 365 days plus a few maybe hours i'll give you the answer first from our poet laureate dave fairchild in kansas there are four that went to space and spent a year or more there. Polyakov is first in line, 438 in midair. Sergey A. is next to go, 380 workdays, while Monorov and Titoff spent a year and almost one day. And then it was Edwin King in the UK who said his Bruce Bean, Trixie, Vladimir Titoff and Musa Monorov only spent 365 days in space on Mir, 1987-88. But the flight duration was 365 days, 22 hours, 38 minutes. So that counts, surely. That's it. I was being tricksy. (laughs) I tricked myself.
2: Yes, that definitely counts. Those are uh, the four we will take. Polyakov with his 437.7 days in space, Avdeev 379.6, and Vladimir Titov and Musa Manarov at 365
0: days plus a little bit. Well played, sir. Well, then here is our winner, who I thought had won before, but I, I guess it's just because we've corresponded a little bit over the two years that I have record of that uh, that he's been entering. But this is a first-time win, apparently, for Joseph Poutre in uh, New Jersey. New Jersey you had all four of those names, uh, starting with those first two, uh, who were well past 365. Congratulations, Joseph. We're going to send you a uh, planetary radio t shirt from chopshopstore.com, which is where you'll find all of the Planetary Society's merch. All kinds of cool stuff there, chopshopstore.com. Uh, from our pun master, Robert Klein in Arizona All cosmonauts, is this merely a coincidence? So you're going to give us a tough question next time? Or bet you will. Ha
2: ha ha Yes, merely all of them
0: spent their time on the Mir space station. Mark Little in Northern Ireland, he said, if you counted space travelers who were up there on cumulative missions, it would be 41 people, the longest being Janati Ivanovich Padalka, 878 days in space over five missions. Very impressive. Finally, from Bert Caldwell in New York, It is shocking how few people have been in space for over a year. We are not ready to go to Mars. Bert, um, I'm afraid I reluctantly have to agree. Wow. We're ready to go on to a a new one. Back to the Olympics. Name all the Olympics
2: for which an Olympic torch was flown in space.
0: Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You mean there was at least one? I mean, (laughs) I had no idea that there was an Olympic torch flown in space. Uh, with the thought that fire acts kind of weird in microgravity and probably isn't a well, whatever, we'll find out in two weeks. Just, just
2: to be clear, flame is not required. A torch is required. Olympic torch is
0: required. Ah. Oh, Max, Max likes this one. Uh, you have until the 18th, that'd be August 18 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to answer this one. And, Win yourself. Here's something we haven't offered in a while. How about one of those very cool kick asteroid planetary society (laughs) asteroids? (laughs) It can be yours. Uh, Just enter the contest and you might get picked by random.org. All right, everybody. Go out there,
2: look up the night sky, and think about what Olympic events should planetary radio be part of. Thank you. Good night.
0: Oh, man, what would be, is there an event for uh, rover rolling, having rovers roll over you?
2: (laughs) No, but there should be. I think it'll be an exhibition event in uh, Paris uh, in three years.
0: Really long-time listeners to Planetary Radio get it. Uh, They get it because it came from Bruce Betts, the uh, chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who has been with us for, well, it'll be 19 years soon, every week for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its high-flying members. Slip the Surly Bonds of Earth with us at planetary.org slash join. Marco Verde and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astra.